bitch. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Bitch, the Chicago. Hi everyone, Ewan here. Uh, before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say something because I completely missed this when I was recording it, but turns out that this week's episode is the 50th episode of Wheel of Dad Movies, which is kind of a cool milestone. I forgot to acknowledge the year milestone, like, a few months ago, so I'm making sure that I do it this time. Uh, and it's actually worked out really well, because this week, as you've probably seen from the title, we're going into The Untouchables, which is... Um, one of the ultimate, like, Mount Rushmore dad movies to me. Um, I got to see it on the big screen um, with Thomas Mulgrew, one of our patrons and a close friend, um, which is lovely. Thank you, Thomas, as always. And, yeah, it's just, uh, it's nice. Um, I'm joined again by Scott Wiley of the Action Addicts podcast this week. Um, He was kind enough to answer my Untouchables signal, which I lit on Twitter um, beforehand, um, but yeah, I hope you all enjoy the episode, and thank you all so much for listening over the last 50 episodes. Got more fun stuff planned for the end of the year, but yeah, uh, I'll stop yapping now, just want to say thank you and acknowledge that 50 is a cool number, and yeah, see you in the episode. Hey everyone, what is up? It is me, Ewan, and welcome once again to the We Love Dad Movies podcast. We've got a fun little back-to-back guest action going on this week, because Scott Wiley of the Action Addicts podcast has kindly volunteered his services. To, he answered the the untouchable signal I put up on Twitter early in the week, so we're diving into Brian De Palma's 1987 classic for this episode, which I uh, is a beloved movie for me. I... I'm going to go into my origin story with the Untouchables in this episode. Um, and we're going to both talk about why it's a great movie. And yeah, I got to see it on the big screen for the Tyneside Cinema's um, big screen magic season, which was amazing because on the weekend I got only got to see that. I got to see a double bill of Escape from New York and Escape from LA. The LA one had a 35mm print. It was gorgeous. Um, and then Once Upon a Time in the West on the Saturday and then uh, Untouchables on the Monday. So it's been a good weekend. But yeah, Scott, welcome to the podcast once again. Thank you very much for having me back. Uh, I find it very amusing that uh, when we last spoke, we left on a bit of a potential teaser that the next time I'd be on, we might be talking about some cowboys in space. And no, no, instead (laughs) I'm right back. I'm just pulled right back in to talk about Untouchables. You know, you put out the call and said, who's going to do it the Chicago way? And I said, me, I will say. Exactly. He 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 brings a a podcast. You bring a podcast invite. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm not I'm not completing that well enough. But on the upside, because uh, we're doing the Untouchables this week, it does mean that we get to do more Sean Connery impressions. Which I don't know if you listened to the the episode on the Rock I did with uh, Matt of Film Feast. I did, but the Sean Connery impressions were immaculate. So I'm hoping you've brought your A game in that department. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> but yeah, The Untouchables. I'm really excited to talk about this movie because it kind of... it's. I mentioned in the Die Hard of the Vengeance episode earlier in the year that... Um, or the other month, I should say. It wasn't that long ago. Um, that there were certain films that kind of were like watershed moments for me in terms of moving beyond just this is for kids to this is specifically... For grown-ups. It's clear, you know, when you're a kid, whatever. 
And um, the Untouchables alongside Die Hard with a Vengeance um, was one of those movies for me that kind of ushered in that, like, kind of more grown-up, mature action movie kind of thing for me. Um, Introduced me to old man Sean Connery, which, in my view, is the best Sean Connery. Um, And it's just a banger of a film. It's so bloody and brilliant and so sincere and earnest and goofy in many respects, but also immaculately performed, has... And this is going to be controversial, I think, potentially. I don't know. I think all Ennio Morricone scores are amazing. This is my favourite Morricone score, Scott. It makes me cry. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's just a beautiful movie. And The Untouchables has been one of those that, like was on constant rotation at home. Like, I would say that we, me, Mama and Dad would probably watch this thing, like, at least once a year. Um, the other film that tended to be on that list was, like, Jaws. It was always Jaws and The Untouchables who couldn't go a year without watching either one. Um, and so it's, like, it's... The scenes are burned into my brain. Um, it's just a great fun time. And, yeah, um... I don't know how 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 do you feel about the Untouchables? Because like you were very you were evidently excited to at the prospect of talking about it here. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's. I was gonna say unironically, but no, it, it genuinely is one of my favorite films, and I don't share that same. This was one of the movies that I started watching in that transitionary period from childhood to adult films, because uh, I think I watched it. Well, I can't remember when I first watched it, to be completely honest with you. It probably would have been in the early 2000s, late 90s. No, no, early 2000s. I always say late 90s. There's no way I'll watch this in the late 90s. It would have been the early 2000s. Um, And I loved it from the word go for a couple of different reasons. Obviously, much the same as you. Sean Connery, easily one of my favorite actors. And, you know, I, I love him as Bond. I love him as a lot of different roles. And Several of his old man roles have always resonated with me, especially when I was younger. Because let's face it, when you're a kid, he very much is that old grandpa, old uncle character that a lot of kids gravitate towards. And he's usually playing a tough guy, so it's really easy to resonate with him. But the fact that it is such a complete film, I wouldn't label this as an action film. I wouldn't label this as a thriller. I wouldn't label it as a drama. Probably wouldn't label it as a comedy for obvious reasons, but... It's such a multifaceted film that I feel like every time I've rewatched it, as I've gotten older, I've appreciated aspects of the filmmaking, the performances, the framing with the camera, the cinematography. There's so much of it that I enjoy on different levels every time I rewatched it. And for full disclosure, this is the first time I watched this film in about five years. Um, oh, damn. So yeah, it, this isn't a film that was on repeat in my house. My dad did show me this film. But I I know exactly why this wasn't on a repeat, and that's because my dad doesn't like watching films where the heroes die. And obviously, the Sean Connery scene, as legendary as it was, is a scene that he doesn't enjoy watching because it's a hero and he gets killed, and it's, you know, based on true events, which doesn't help. But growing up, yeah, my friends were all about this film. I mean, I think that quote of bringing a knife to a gunfight everybody knew even if they had no clue what film it was from whereas <laughs> my friends and i actually did <laughs> yeah yeah oh man he brings a knife he brings a gun he sends one of his girls to the hospital he sends one of his to the morgue that's how you do it the chicago way just immortal and i know people take the mick out of sean so sean's irish accent 
in this um, or lack thereof. But it yeah. all works for me. Look. Like I just, it's it's he owns this movie. He is absolutely fantastic in it. And I suppose I should give a brief synopsis for you know just for the sake of giving context. Uh, Intouchables, nineteen eighty seven, directed by Brian De Palma. Um, based on the true story of Elliot Ness and the uh, the case that went into busting Al Capone, who, of course, as most historians will know, uh, went away to prison, not for all of his gangland violence and, you know, his criminal empire, but because of tax evasion. Um, and The Untouchables tells a highly fictionalized retelling of that story, uh, incorporating real-life mobsters, like, obviously, Capone, played by Robert De Niro here, in one of his best kind of... Um, low screen time performances and we'll go into like De Niro's casting here because there's a fun story about obviously Bob Hoskins was originally considered by De Palma to play um, Capone too but the likes of you know Niddy is in this Uh, obviously Elliot Ness is a real figure who um, I kind of info dumping here but really interesting story about what happens to him after the Untouchables he goes on to take a leading role in the investigation of the Cleveland Torso Killer and it kind of ruins his career and it was really his, you know, story of the 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 biography of the the Untouchables that really kind of resurrected him into a modern American folk hero. I'm getting distracted, but but it's the point of basically the movie is about Ness, the Untouchables, that which is the name of the group of um, Chicago cops that came together to um, basically take on Al Capone, who at the time of Prohibition, after the uh, passing of the Volstead Act, um, he was kind of basically the de facto ruler of Chicago. Um, he had everyone in his pocket. And um, The Untouchables as a film is really... It's about heroism in its purest, most earnest form. And also evil. But the thing that I find so great about this film is that even, you know... I think there's an endearing goofiness to it at times. And I think Kevin Costner embodies that really well. I know people, again, like to make fun of his acting abilities in a great many ways. I actually think his hamminess works for Ness so well here. Um, it's just about, it's a, it's a great movie about heroism and defying the odds and, you know, standing up and, and doing what you think is right. Um, a proper, great, cheesy, but emotionally driven, character-driven film from the 80s. And... Yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna go into it, and I'm just yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it because it the cast is ridiculous here, and I want to talk about actually before we go into because there's no real order how I do these things. Can I just <laughs> get my Charles Martin Smith appreciation bit out of the way? You can <laughs> go for it. He is by far and away probably my favorite character in the movie. Um, he plays an accountant that is sent down by the Treasury Department to assist Ness in his efforts to um, clamp down on bootlegging and, you know, um, Capone's gangs violating the Volstead Act. And all throughout this, it's just him, this little diminutive nerd um, with his specs on, smoking a pipe, learning to be one of the boys at the same time as, like, basically, you know, proposing the idea to take down Capone under a tax evasion racket. And I have to say, Scott, the bit where they intercept the um, the Canadian whiskey yeah. on the border and they have that amazing cowboy charge onto the bridge with just the amazing Morricone score swelling in the background and uh, Andy Garcia's George Stone gets hit 
and uh, it just unlocks um, Charles Martin Smith's, like, uh, who plays Oscar Wallace. It just unlocks Wallace's, like, rage mode. Yeah. And he just goes to town on these guys with the with the shotgun. And I, I wrote like... that exact thing down in my notes. <laughs> I, I literally wrote, Wallace goes into rage mode at the sight of seeing Stone <laughs> get shot. You know, the Doom music has just kicked in for this guy. <laughs> oh my god, can we please... I need to do an edit of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, yeah, he just charges them all down. You've got this beautiful Morricone score swelling as he's, like, shotgunning them. And then there's that great bit where he comes around the corner. He's run out of shells. The mobster on the other side of the truck has run out of uh, his his Tommy gun. His Chicago typewriter is jammed. And he just runs at him screaming, butts him, knocks him out, and then treats himself to a wee drama the good stuff. That might be, like, just one of my all-time favourite movie scenes. And I just, I love... Charles Martin Smith is never bad in movies. He's always great. Um, I watched him in Deep Cover the other week for the first time. Great, amazing movie. He's great in it too. But I love his role in this. And obviously we're going to talk a lot about how, you know... Obviously, spoilers, by the way, people. If you haven't seen The Untouchables, what are you doing? Um, But we always talk about Malone's death in this film as being, like, the big heartbreaking moment. And it is heartbreaking. God damn, Wallace's death in this film crushes me oh. each time. Yeah, to, it, to be honest. I felt so much pain when I watched this the first time as a kid. It made me feel so sad. To be honest, I think Wallace's death is actually harder to watch. Uh, Malone's death, because obviously in, in inverted commas, it's a bigger actor. He had to have a bigger heroic death. But at the same time... He kind of walked into his own death, whereas Wallace gets completely taken by surprise. And, you know, as the film goes on, you realize that not only was he taken by surprise, but he was let down by the people that he thought were had his back. Mm. And that, you know, Wallace's death to me is a hundred times worse than Malone's. At least Malone went down fighting. Wallace didn't even manage to grab his gun, you know. And the look of panic in his eyes before it happens. It's just, it's like really vicious and nasty. And then he gets turned into a fucking effigy. Um, It's it's interesting because I could understand why maybe, you know, as the Untouchables as it is, I think it's a beautiful marriage of like good and evil. You know, it's a great good and evil story. And there's some really, really sad lows like Wallace's death, like Malone's death. Um, when Morricone's score is basically accentuating the drama to the nth degree. And I could maybe understand why maybe people would look at that and go, well, on a total level, this is kind of like giving me whiplash. Um, but I think it really works. Um, oh, I'm right and, there yeah. with you, but do bear in mind I watch Hong Kong films. Tonal whiplash don't mean anything when you start <laughs> watching those things. <laughs> totally, totally. Um but yeah, I mean, I have, like, I've watched this thing a week ago. I'm kind of like, I'm like to quote the Joker of the Dark Knight, I'm like a dog chasing cars. I have no idea where to start with this. So I don't know if there was a specific part of the movie that you wanted to celebrate or talk about or go into. Uh, I'd like to go back to what you said about Kevin Cosner acting, maybe not being the best and, and that you think that works for him. And I, I'd just like to say I agree. I've I've never been a Kevin Costner hater. I enjoy pretty much every film I've seen him in. Um, and one of the things that I really like is how Ness starts off as the definition of a straight-laced good guy. 
you know the, the <laughs> things that the rest of the police take the mick out of him for when that bust goes wrong i think the audience is on the police side until <laughs> they realize that obviously they're all corrupt but let's make a difference gentlemen yeah man <laughs> let's do some good um, yeah, let's do some good yeah <laughs> but, but the fact that we then get because of that the one of the greatest examples of what i call sad saxophone scenes in these types of movies where he goes on the bridge he's got a cigarette the sad saxophone starts playing in the background and that's the introduction to malone and we get those two just the chemistry between kevin costner and sean connery just works for me um Mm. there's like you say the fact that he's supposed to be irish doesn't really bother me because you know He's also. I, th- I think he's one of the most diverse actors on the planet. No one else other than Sean Connery can play a British secret agent, a Russian submarine commander, and an Irish cop and sound exactly the same and still be celebrated. So point yes. to anybody else that can do that and uh, I'll, I'll be over here waiting. But And whoever can pull off the Zardoz outfit as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, I just think that the cast in and of itself was worth celebrating. I mean, I kind of alluded to it, but one of the the, the character that actually kills Oscar Wallace is played by Billy Drago. And Billy Drago at the time was known to me because I, I don't know if you have watched this as well, but I used to watch Charmed. I don't know if you remember that show. That was a show that my mum watched. It was a mum show. So I, I didn't, I occasionally dropped in. I think actually the, the face does ring like a slight bell so billy drago was well he was originally a one-time like villain of the week done but he was so goddamn popular and terrifying he played the literal demon of fear that he came back probably more times than any other villain and eventually just became a recurring character so going from that where he was terrifying in that show to then seeing him as this character as a kid i was like yeah that's perfect casting like Billy Drago mm. is just effortlessly intimidating and creepy at the same time, which is a pretty good mix when you want to put people on edge. His face in this film, I feel like the the costuming, obviously the costuming in this film is is bloody excellent. Um, the makeup as well, like his face, the guy who tries to bribe them, um, obviously <laughs> De Niro is Capone. They all look like the textbook definition of like evil gangster but nitty um as played by drago he is he is like death he is literally death you know he's he's got his white robes on um with the slick black hair and like every single scene he's in he just looks like a weapon of pure malice like that bit where um he threatens obviously the, the opening scene where he's blowing up that child in the bar which is just what a way to open your movie after the the great Morricone intro. Um, yes, I'd like and, to talk about that, that as well when you finish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then after you know the Untouchables are starting to make their waves, and then uh, you know Capone's like, "I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground." And then he gets you know threatened by Nitty. Just um, the dialogue. If I if I'm going to recite the dialogue here, it's going to sound like a Simpsons bit, like I'm Fat Tony. <laughs> and I'm, I'm taking the, the piss out of it. But it's just really good. Good to have a family, isn't it? And he's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> Completely oblivious. Probably too oblivious until the moment where it's made abundantly clear that he is being threatened. Oh, yes. Um, but all of it, 
is so good, and that obviously makes his uh, his 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 receiving of his just desserts at the end even more sweet. But yeah, definitely def- go into the intro because it is uh, it is a good one. I love the juxtaposition at the beginning, but I also I, I want to preface this by saying that you're listening to two people from England who were not alive in 1930s talk about a film that is a highly fictionalized version of events that happened in America, which neither one of us are from. That said, they show you Capone in his element, smiling, happy, charming. You could very easily fall on his side of things and think, yeah, well, we all know his story. He says one of the famous Capone quotes that everybody does. You know, it's easier to get what you want with a smile, handshake and a gun than just a smile and a handshake. And the fact that they then show you that somebody who doesn't want to buy his liquor then gets blown up and they do a very specific thing by like you just said they blow up a small girl like she isn't just caught in the blast she is the center of the blast because she picks up the suitcase that has the bomb in it now and is innocently trying to help this person <laughs> yes and and the the thing that i both like and dislike about that is you kind of hit the nail on the head of what they were trying to do there at the beginning that this is a film that is very clearly trying to tell a story of good versus evil. Any nuance of the real events of what happened, which is complete chaos and very, very different by all my research, because I got very into that time period when I watched this film the first time around, uh, it's very different to how the film portrays it, is my understanding. But they do they, they want the audience to know from the word go, he is not the nice, charming man that he presents himself for the newspapers, that he pretends to be when he's out in public. He will kill people and kill innocent people, more importantly, if they get in the way of him making money. And that is great from a filmmaking point of view, but I could see why some people at the time were sort of like, yeah, none of this is realistic or real. But I like it from a filmmaking point of view, because like you said, it immediately tells the audience what they need to know about what it is that they're watching and it gives Elliot Ness that motivation to get up and try, even when he might not want to. Same as the mother of that girl shows up for one scene, and that one scene is all you really need. And that's what pretty much makes him assemble the Untouchables. Yeah, that was, that's what's put it. That that is what puts him on the warpath. Totally, I totally agree. And I think it's obviously a point worth making here that the movie is aware that prohibition is stupid, um, and. Ness, in a way, is aware of it, so they have to show the evil that you know, ostensible well, that, that that went into the act of like keeping the booze going into the cities and stuff at certain dynamics and at certain levels, um, to make you root for these guys who are basically cracking down on everyone's you know right to drink beer and booze. You know, it's kind yeah, of like yeah. you've got to have that aspect to it. Um, I think The Simpsons did it really well too. Homer versus the 18th Amendment. Again, we're two for two on Simpsons references so far today. Um, but yeah, and I do think that that good versus evil thing is what really sells this for me. I think your your enjoyment of this movie comes down to whether or not you can get roped into this kind of like... Um, I don't really think it's fair to say it's moralistic. I think it's more kind of like... Um, it's just a... Ba- like It's almost like a, a, a longful ballad for the old American hero and villain. Um I like what De Palma plays with here. It's very pulpy. And there are some elements here where it dives into the 
you know, that thin line between what makes a hero a hero and how far he strays into becoming a villain to achieve his goals. But, you know, I like the way that De Palma plays it, where it's more kind of straight and narrow. We are looking at people basically taking it upon themselves to do the thing with courage that no one else in this city of fear actually, you know, has. Um, and I totally buy into it. And I think that's, you know, partially on the, the cast because they're all so believable. I love Andy Garcia here. And the epiphany I've had watching this is that I've actually, like, Andy Garcia is quite a big name actor. I think I've only seen him in this in the Godfather Part 3. <laughs> I'm struggling to think about the stuff that I've seen him in, but he's really good in this as uh, the young George Stone. Um, and obviously the fact that he's kind of the less assuming member of the Untouchables makes it even kind of I like that he gets his moment to stand out after both Malone and Wallace have been killed because he really comes into his own in that kind of final act yeah his character progression is great I really enjoy him I've seen him in quite a lot of stuff um I'm trying to remember exactly there's quite a few different things I've seen him in I know that um like you say the Godfather part three but he was in the Wrath of Man with Jason Statham, although I can't remember how big of a role he had, but I'm pretty confident. Yeah, he was it. Have you never seen the Ocean's Eleven trilogy? Of course I've seen him in Ocean's. I've also seen him in Black Rain. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. He was in yeah, Smoking yeah. Aces. I mean, he was unfortunately in the Pink Panther 2 remake, but yeah, I've, <laughs> I've seen him in lots of stuff. I was just like, no, I'm pretty sure I've seen him in, in other stuff. So yeah, yeah. He was great in this. I, I really like his evolution. I also really like the fact that he could... He could bring a level of darkness that Elliot Ness was not able to, but Ness used it in such a way that he could basically be like, I know you've got this in you. I don't want it in me, but I'm going to let you off the leash every now and then when I need it done. And that yeah. was a great way of doing it because at the very beginning of the film, you're absolutely right. Ness is so by the book that he doesn't care whether or not something is right or wrong in my opinion it's illegal therefore it's wrong and that's as much as he's willing to engage with the law by the end of the film he doesn't think that way anymore now he's got a lot of opinions and the fact that he basically says at the end you know i'm gonna have a drink if prohibition gets removed i don't think he that there's any way he'd have said that at the start of the film he'd have just not commented on it um but also Malone is an interesting character, especially rewatching it this time around, because you're completely right in that De Palma is leaning into the, mora the morality of each individual character. Stone is a rookie, essentially, that was plucked from the Academy because he can shoot well. Wallace was an accountant that, to be blunt, got in way over his head because he was just basically handed a gun and told, come on, you're coming with us, and he died, oh, unfortunately. so much. <laughs> um, but Malone is the odd one out, and Malone is actually kind of a mysterious character. He never really gives you answers to any of the questions that people have about him. You have to kind of connect the dots yourself, and I think that he there's no way he was coming out of this film alive because it is in his character's death that i think he finds redemption because yes as the film goes on they basically reveal that he is not without his fair share of dirt um he hasn't done anything anywhere near as bad as anybody else but he knows everybody else is doing it he knows his friends in inverted commas are working for Capone he knows where everything is he knows what everybody's doing 
and he chooses to just walk on by because, as he says right at the beginning of the film when he's first asked to get involved, I decided that it was more important to stay alive than get involved. And you can't blame him, but I feel like as the film goes on, he starts to struggle with that. And it starts to catch up with him that actually 10 years ago, he could have been Ness, but he didn't. He chose to just quietly turn and look away and just walk the beat and pretend like, you know, everything's fine. So the fact that for him, this is as much a personal redemption as it is a crusade against what's right and wrong, that he was always destined to die because there's no other way it could have ended for him to actually achieve that. Yeah, really well said. And I do think him walking the beat is as much as him kind of ignoring it, but as much as him putting his foot down about how far he's willing to go to be with his friends. Because the implication really is that the reason why he's been held back from promotion for so long, he's talking about it in a self-preservation sense, you know, walking a beat, it's safe or whatever. But, you know, it's still a dangerous job. Um, It's... I think it's evident to me that it's because he hasn't cozied up with his friends and taken that kind of gamble. Um, and I think the one thing that I picked up on this rewatch of the film, which I thought was really interesting, is his relationship to... It is the... Um, it's not the chief of police, it's the captain, isn't it? Yeah, um, the captain. Yeah, Chief, oh, chief Mike Dorset. yeah. It's interesting, because for some reason, when I've ever I've watched this movie before, I've never really caught on that, like, oh, he is the, the mole, the mole. I always thought, oh, he's just going to him because he knows that that's why he was here. He was just tolerating his Capone associations beforehand. I think it's really interesting what they have going on because it shows that even then, the chief, <laughs> even though he bristles against it, he's still, he's almost resigned to the, the state of things and the violence and the misery and like, he doesn't see any other alternative, which again adds a degree of nuance to there. Maybe not as much as, you know, scholars of the era would have liked but i like that kind of dynamic that goes on between them and how the chief is like you know he is a reflection of where essentially at the start of the movie they're kind of both in a similar-ish position the only difference is that you know malone has put his foot down but only meekly they're still kind of doing a similar amount of damage but for the fact that they're ignoring well malone is ignoring and the other guy is aiding and abetting and I like that part where they do confront each other over it because it shows to me that, you know, Malone had been going after the targets and causing real disruption and hurt, but it feels as if that maybe that bit at the end when when he is dying and he's his his words are, you know, what are you prepared to do, Dines? Which is obviously a callback to um, you know, them meeting at the church. Yeah. Um, it almost feels like he has finally answered that question to himself. He knows what he is prepared to do. He is willing to die for, you know, the right cause. This is a really beautiful moment. Um, I love it so much. And that entire, again, going from one thing into another here, the entire sequence of Malone's death is one of the best directed sequences out there. It is like a, a case study in how to frame suspense. Beautifully arranged on the set from that one opening motion just switching to you know obviously the the fact that we're focusing on Racine the two guys moving around you know even put it the continuity is brilliant as well because obviously Nitty's there at the, the opening establishing shot and then he moves around so of course you know he's going to be hanging around there so even though it's a shock it's all kind of foreshadowed it's great and again I think you know for me Cements Morricone is one of the great composers he does his work on this film is so perfectly scored 
and 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 composed and the rhythm and everything it's just so beautifully done and i think it equals what he did with leone it feels just as in tune you know with everything there's a rhythm there's a flow and it's such an inventive score but yeah that that scene i just think is is a stunner up there you know obviously we have the the great battleship potemkin um montage uh sorry um uh tribute um homage on, on the train station uh, shoot out but this for me is just it's so incredibly well done and gets even more torturous to watch when you know the ultimate outcome yeah yeah i mean the first time i watched it i was i mean upset is probably the wrong word but it definitely shocked me because this is probably the first time i'd seen a sean connery character get killed mm. and that that in and of itself was also powerful because you know he's normally the leading man he's normally the hero of the story and they really framed him as being the hero alongside ness i mean there's many many scenes that only happen because malone pushes them because malone guides them and they kind of need him in order to get going and obviously like you say in his final moment he gives them the location of the bookkeeper and reiterates his lesson in inverted commas of what are you prepared to do because he knows he's dead. He knows he's dead as soon as he gets shot. The The last sort of victory he can have is to relay the information that only he has back to the others. Otherwise, everybody that's died is in vain. And that's kind of where the difference for me between Malone and the Chief is that the Chief is responsible for the death of Wallace and the death of the policeman that was waiting at the door. Because... He literally watches Nissi walk away. He literally, he sees the dead cop. And yes, he does the whole cross thing. And he's like, oh my God, you know, that another cop's dead. We don't do anything. He just carries on and pretends like it's not his problem. There's no other way. And that's the difference for me is like you said, the chief might believe that there's nothing that they could do, but there is. The difference is he's not prepared to do it. And Malone now is. And that's why, you know, it works for me. Because, yeah, there's the risk you're going to die. And in the case of a lot of the cops, there's a risk that the fact that you've probably been complicit in a lot of this stuff is going to come out. But it's still the right thing to do. So are you prepared to do it or not? The other thing that works so well for me in that scene is when you rewatch it, they kind of set it up so well with... You know, St- uh, I was going to say Stallone then. <laughs> Malone. What are you prepared to do? Eh? Yeah, I know. That would have been a very different film. Uh, Malone, you know, he's like, he, he kind of doesn't know what to make of Ness when they first meet on the bridge that we alluded to earlier. And he's like... <laughs> who would claim to be that which they are not? <laughs> well, I I think it's more, who on earth would claim to be a treasury agent? Like that's No, no one's going to claim to be that unless they actually are. Um, but the fact that he ends it with, uh, and I know you want it, so here we go. It's, you just fulfilled the first rule of law enforcement. Make sure when your shift is over, you go home alive. Here ends the lesson. <laughs> oh, yes. That's the good stuff. <laughs> but the fact that they had that be the, the first lesson is go home alive. He was killed at his home. Yes, and I did, I think this is, Another thing that I love so much about that scene is that he cl- he he clutches on to his um 
it's Saint Saint Jude, isn't it? The patron yes. saint of police. You see, he's clutching onto that, even when he is mustering. You know, he's he's doing it to, he, when he's mustering the courage with Ness in the church to make their pact. As Ness makes his quote unquote deal with the devil to abandon his old methods and go after Capone where it hurts. You know, bending the rules or whatever. It's almost like you know Malone is clutching onto that thing in fear. The beautiful thing is in that final scene in his death is that. He's reaching for the 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 timesheet of the trains that lets them know where the bookkeeper is, and Ness goes to give him the the yeah. obviously the, the you know the the, key the chain. Saint Jude the keychain, and he obviously just he doesn't even contemplate holding on to it. He just throw he kind of moves it away and then grabs the paper because in that moment he has no fear. You know he he's he's. Like again, what are you prepared to do? He is coming to terms with the fact that he is dying for something that is good, and even though Saint Jude has maybe you know not looked out for him there particularly well, um, he is still kind of embracing and accepting the fate here and and, and making sure that they go See, out defiantly. There, there is another way you can read that as well that that kind of leans into what you were trying to say there. He isn't just the patron saint of policemen, he's the patron saint of lost souls, and in that moment, he's yes. not a lost soul anymore. Yes. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's it's one of the best scenes, and yeah, again, it fully deserved Oscar win, I feel here. I'm saying that without being familiar with the other people that were up for that role, uh, for, the, for that award that year, um, but I just, yeah, great. Great performance. Um, should probably talk a little bit about Al Capone. Because this is a Bobby De Niro banger. It's so good. From that first meeting where he's talking to the press, he establishes every facet of everything you need to know about the legend of Al Capone. You have the smooth-talking wise guy who is able to charm people, despite the fact they are fully aware of the hideous stuff that he's been up to. And you have that simmering rage that he manages to suppress to keep his nice guy kind of you know thing going on where he gets nicked by the razor it's so good and it's probably not my favorite scene of his in the movie i think you know more towards the end he he would when we get into the court drama stuff it kind of you know reduces itself to just a shouty performance or whatever the it's probably the most famous scene in the movie this the bit where it's him and the rest of his his capos and, and lieutenants and stuff around the dinner table and he's giving them a big talk about you know baseball and he gets the baseball bat to hammer home his point both yeah. figuratively and literally and again another expert example of why De Palma is one of the masters of suspense here you know who's gonna get whacked um it's so good it's so good I think that's probably my favorite Capone moment in the movie. That that scene always makes me laugh because the second he picks up a baseball bat, if I was those guys at the table, I would not <laughs> take my eyes off him because it's like it's Al Capone with a baseball bat. Why on earth would you sit there chuckling to yourself if he stood behind you for some time talking about teamwork? <laughs> and it's like, oh well, you know, I've been doing stuff on the side, but I'm sure the boss who finds out everything and runs the city yeah, won't find out about just, me. Just a funny guy. He's just having a fucking laugh, isn't he? He's just got a baseball bat. That's so classic, Al. I know, right? It's like, oh my God, you guys. I know you're scary in your own right, but Jesus, some of you, some of you deserve that baseball bat in the back of the head. Because like, if you couldn't see that coming, I don't know how you even got the gig in the first place. 
it's um that ultimate moment of violence is so great and obviously you know the way that the camera then pans up and you've got the of the Morricone score and the blood leaking out onto the table and obviously the stuff that's sprayed everywhere the the violent the way that they do like the squibs and blood and everything in this it's so brutal um like the uh obviously the bit where we have the the interception of the booze and the Canadian border, you have that great bit where it's like, hard to talk with a gun in your mouth, and then he shoots the, the corpse and the, the blood goes on, you know. The detail and the viscosity of everything, especially when Wallace and um, the the bookkeeper uh, get killed um, in the elevator. That wasn't the um, bookkeeper, but yes. Oh, not the bookkeeper. The, the um, oh, what's his name? you not got the... You've not got the... What does he say? you not got the fucking... Oh, I forgot. I've completely forgotten the name of the guy. I forget what they say because it's not the yeah, the bookkeeper is on is on this train. Is he on this train? But I've forgotten the name of the guy that they get at the thingy because he's fundamental to the case. But yes, you the, the what I'm going anyway is the uh, like you can see the bits of skull and brain on the walls. It is ruthless. Oh, it yeah. is ruthless. Yeah, I really, I really like that whole sequence and. I think what sells it for me is that it also is like a a moment of change for Ness because that's come after the threat on his family. So his whole moral compass is is in the process of shifting dramatically. And the Canadian captain that almost messed up the entire plan because he charged too early <laughs> then is like, I don't approve of your methods. And he's like, well, this is the Chicago way. And it's like, oh, okay, so we've decided that we're not going to be a straight-laced spider book, you know, cop-type person anymore then. Okay, okay, I like it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so good. And it's just, uh, I think the I think the action here is all really well done. I, um, I love, 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 obviously, the shootout on the bridge. I think that's fantastic. The battleship Potemkin homage where they're at chicago union station and it's just ness and stone you have oh, god that, damn this baby that, this, this that goddamn baby man amazing <laughs> but it is beautiful it's absolutely stunning and i think the um the bit where ness pulls the shotgun from beneath his trench coat to get that guy one-handed that is one of the coolest shots ever so take a bow, Mr. De Palma. Your movie's got like some of the coolest shots ever. That is one of the coolest action opening bits. And I love the way they they do the slow-mo here, where it's like we're moving in a liminal time space where it's not quite slowed down. Like some movements are, you know, like they're stuck in mud, but they're still there are certain things that happen a little bit more quickly. I love that, because it does feel like it's unfolding like a waking, you know gun ballet nightmare <laughs> yeah yeah to be honest that scene is that scene in a bottle on its own works without any context for the rest of the movie um not only does it have a fantastic start with that shotgun kill which props to the stuntman because that definitely looks like he gets yanked through those doors with probably a bunch of people on a wire because this probably would have been before they had the uh the automatic wire rig systems that we have now but something propels him at great speed through that door <laughs> to break the glass but the end of that is the hostage scene and i absolutely love that moment when george <sighs> slides in he's at a terrible angle he's only got one hand on his revolver 
and he just says i got him and then yeah. ness just puts his gun down and he's like take him and he just gets him and it it infuriates me in so many films where someone's face is so clearly visible to the guy with a gun and they're like oh i can't i can't risk the shot and in here they're just like no i can take him no problem even though i'm <laughs> lying on the floor one-handed and at an odd angle i could still quite clearly shoot the guy that's barely five feet in front of me it's like yes thank you you know <laughs> yeah and obviously propping up that gigantic old school pram as well yeah. those, those things mega heavy so he's got he's got a good thigh calf strength to hold that up and obviously in that motion you have the bit where ness runs out of bullets and stone tosses in his backup revolver as well to get the other guy which i just i love it is a beautifully beautifully framed sequence um and obviously with the uh the capture of the bookkeeper that takes us into the big trial so not only are we getting all you know the good kind of like cowboys cops and robbers um american mythology and the story about like good versus evil we also get a good old-fashioned american courtroom drama resolution with a couple of final act twists um thrown in for good measure with with obviously nitty um how do you feel about this kind of like the chase scene between ness and nitty and how it's framed because it works for me like by and large it works for me and i think the ending where um he gets thrown off the building um it's just fantastically shot i love the way they do that you know the uh the projection effect and then him kind of like falling <laughs> into the car and then you get that 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 zinger afterwards where they're like where's nitty he's in the car um i do feel like it's paced kind of a little bit weirdly where they're both going after each other in a weird kind of jog at times um but yeah i think it's it's a nice way to end things and it so satisfying when nitty finally gets what's coming to him yeah I, I don't have any problems with the actual chase uh the only sort of minor problem i have is with the setup i i think that the the reason why that chase starts is so flimsy um all the way through the film billy drago's character has been terrifying and in control and he still is right up until the point that somehow he doesn't realize that mate you know ness has his matchbook which for some reason is still the same matchbook that had the address of one of his targets on which you just think yeah a professional killer would keep a piece of evidence <laughs> on him days weeks later after the, the hit that makes sense but also when he is then like told oh i had a friend that lived at that address he just suddenly panics and starts like making bad decisions and you're like i i tried to think about this like i just don't understand why he panicked it's like okay I think it's because he knows what ness is inferring there he knows that oh, no, no, no. if he doesn't i yeah. get i get that but like what's he gonna do like that ness doesn't have a gun he does so what does he think is gonna happen that requires him to have that ridiculous of a reaction his boss is currently on trial for well for tax evasion but under the pretense of way worse things and at that point they still think they're going to beat the rap so to me it was like that whole setup just didn't quite work for the character that we'd seen but that aside the actual chase bit fine i didn't have any issues with that i think it maybe goes on for a little bit too long but to, to be honest it's all worth it for that final moment where 
Ness has the opportunity to shoot him, chooses not to because he is still a good man at heart, helps him up, tells him he's under arrest, but then as they're going back, the fact that he then starts telling him that allegedly Malone, you know, died screaming, and then... Like a stuck pig. Yeah. And then the fact that he just pushes him off, and as he's falling, Ness says, hmm. "Does it sound something like that?" And uh, uh, that just makes it for me. Even and the car comment is great too. But the fact that he had the forethought to give him like a one-liner as he's falling—just not many characters do that. The one-liner tends to come after they've hit the ground. I love the idea that that's the last thing he heard. Mm. Yeah, it's the ultimate fuck you to one of cinema's greatest bastards. Um, he just he's so good in this role um and yeah like i think it's always you know a villainous uh, an actor who's played a villain has always done a good job when by the time their death is coming you are fully like begging for it to happen um like there is just a completely irredeemable guy um right down to the end like the moment that ness extends to him um, a shred of humanity he just plucks it away and you know gets what's coming to him in beautiful fashion um and i love the way that they that that whole bit is framed with like the like, kind of lingering on the grisliness that's in the car it's so so good and then we go back to the courtroom and we learn you know they've uh they've he's bribed the jury uh after having retrieved the note from from nitty's coat pocket which again so so funny to just bring that to the courtroom as well <laughs> it's just like here's the incriminating evidence that we bribed the rest of the jury um exactly and and then they you know they they swap the juries and you know after after ness has his one-on-one with the judge and then they get the and capone's lawyer changes his his plea from guilty to not uh from not guilty to guilty and then we have the good old sweeping happy morricone music and ness goes up and reiterates one of the uh the things that Capone had said to him earlier on after the death of Wallace um, when he converted him at the, the hotel. You know, never stop fighting. Never stop fighting until the fight is done. Uh, it's a great time. I love that. And I feel like even after that heroic moment, um, you still really mourn the losses of Wallace and Malone because that photo of them in the restaurant together, man, it's beautiful. I kind of want to print that off and get it framed. <laughs> and just have it in the house and if people don't know what it's from i'll just be like oh yeah no oh, those, those are the boys <laughs> brilliant yeah i also uh, really like that end bit because he doesn't just reiterate the boxing metaphor to him he knows he's won and then he he ends it with the stinger of here endeth the lesson mm, so it's, yeah. a, it's a full circle for it for everybody i also really love the the robert de niro does a great breakdown of capone because in that moment i love the fact that he literally punches his own lawyer and he's like do something and that's when the lawyer's like we're gonna we're gonna change our plea from not guilty to guilty and then everybody goes a bit nuts because wait what and yeah even the lawyer at that point is like nope this is a sinking ship time to get off it every man for himself yeah and then al capone goes to a home and dies of syphilis Yes, and if you'd like to watch that thrilling escapade, I believe there's a Tom Hardy film that'll fill that for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but moving swiftly on from Al Capone's syphilis, um, <laughs> we then go to Ness packing up his things um, and talking to Stone, who is now fully suited and booted 
and is kind of stepping into the Ness role. And I love that Ness gives him, you know, the the keychain with Saint Jude. You know, it's all about how it's the you know it's the patron saint of police with and Ness isn't the cop and Stone is and just looking at that photo, just neatly packing his things away. The 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 lighting in that scene is almost angelic and heavenly. Um it's a beautiful touching moment shared between them. And obviously then Ness goes onto the street and he gets ambushed by that goddamn photographer reporter one more time. You know, asks him that fateful question that fateful question or is like, well I hear they're gonna report the repeal the Volstead Act. Um what will you do then? And then just the the little twinkle eyed, little cheeky just I think I'll have a drink and hat on. Ness just goes into the crowd and we pull back and have that great shot of the, the Chicago skyline. Uh, it's just... Oh, man. This movie's so good, Scott. I love it. <laughs> I can tell. No, I, I agree with you, man. I, I, I appreciated it uh, so much more. I mean, I already really liked it, but rewatching it now... I mean, we could talk about this for hours. I know we're not going to, but just some of the cinematography and some of the choices like that scene in the church that we were just too busy quoting because it's got such great dialogue but <laughs> the way it's shot with the close-up and the, the blurriness of the background i mean it looks like something out of an early 2000s music video but this was made in 1987 and there's lots of little things that you noticed where they were trying i think to experiment with what worked and what didn't with camera angles framing lenses and then you go to that massive shootout on the bridge with the Canadians and barring one bit that makes absolutely no sense. That is just a massive fight of epic scale and proportions. But in reality, it's not. But it makes you feel like you're watching like two massive armies clash. But in reality, there's not that many people present. But it sells it between the score, the caliber of the acting, the fact that it's on horseback, which, again, it just feels so out of place with the rest of the film that it really sticks in your mind, and you've got gangsters fighting Mounties. It's so it's such a weird thing to see that in other films that would be the standout moment, but it's really not. You know, it's like that's, that's to me is one of the greatest compliments you can give it, where there are three to four sequences that in any other film would be your standout sellout piece. And in this, it's just one of the pieces of the film. Totally. And I, I'm a big fan of um, Western elements bleeding into films set in eras after the Old West is done. I'm a big fan of the cowboy out of time trope. And I love how it plays into that Old West mythology here. It's so, so good. And obviously, you know, talking about like legendary outlaws and stuff, the 1920s and 30s, kind of where that resurgence really, you know, comes through after you know the post-civil war era and stuff yeah but yeah the, the, it is a gorgeous movie shot by stephen burham who i he, i think he also did body double with the palmer which is also a gorgeous movie but the lighting like you said here it's all really well done the bit where um it's the it's where malone confronts the chief and they they pull him in from that dingy disgusting looking kind of like snooker room um into the street and then they're just caked in like red neon light behind them um it's beautiful great great film it's it's so technically accomplished and i love how earnest it is and how brutal it is and i'm just a sucker i'm a sucker for it it ropes me in each time i will always cheer when wallace goes on his rampage on on the bridge i'll always you know 
be gutted when he dies, be gutted when Malone dies. Um, the Untouchables is just one of those films that like completely it, it grabs me like around the shoulder, pulls me in for a nice long drink and a catch up, and by the end of it, I'm a changed man. It's just lovely. I think it's just beautiful cinema. Uh, and this, again, it's, it's, there's a reason why this one is in the intro music, or the intro uh, kind of jingle, folks, because it is like it is a foundational movie, and yeah, I just it's great. It's lovely talking about it here, Scott, because this is the this is a testament to what this podcast is all about. I'm glad I get to talk about the Untouchables with you because it's evidently very clear as well that you were a big, big fan of this movie, and I've really enjoyed hearing your insights into it too. I think the one of the reasons why The Untouchables is kind of untouchable in how much people enjoy it is because it is a complete film. And I know that that might sound confusing, but in this day and age especially, I don't think there are many films like this anymore. Although, yes, this can be distilled down to a, a, a case of good versus evil through a fictionalized historical context, it is... It has every ingredient of a successful film and borrows from other genres to make each scene work for what it needs to. As you said, it borrows from westerns, it borrows from thrillers, it borrows from horrors when it wants to. And it doesn't let itself be contained in, oh, this is a such and such film. It wants to tell a specific story, but how it chooses to tell it, the director makes his own. He won't just be contained in a box and say this is what i've made he goes no this is the untouchables you can't just go oh it's a such and such film oh it's it belongs in this genre oh you know we have sean connery therefore it must be a dad movie oh we have such and such it it it, it breaks all of that it unless you've seen it you can't judge it based on what it says on the tin it is in my opinion greater than the sum of its parts yeah totally great movie Great time. And if you are at all curious to know what happened to Ness after the events of The Untouchables, um, Brian Bendis uh, and Mark Andreco did a really good comic called Torso, which um, goes into what Ness got up to after Chicago. I don't know if you know much about this, Scott? Uh, not anymore. Like I said, when I originally watched this film, I went deep in the Al Capone hole, but Ness, I don't remember much about, to be honest. Yeah. So it's a really interesting story. So he kind of comes away from the Untouchables really successfully and he gets appointed to be the um the public safety commissioner of Cleveland. And around about this time, this is where the depression is really in its throes, you know, um all the Hoovervilles are shooting up. Uh and torsos are just found um in the Cleveland River and he kind of basically takes it upon himself to try and solve um these killings and it basically um became the undoing of his career it's a really interesting story i don't know if you're a big comic person but i definitely recommend checking torso out if you can they tried to make a movie of it years ago i do believe fincher was potentially involved but it never got off the ground um so yeah i think that's an interesting kind of like it's it's totally completely nothing like the untouchables however if you are interested in that era and of ness's story um it gets the hard you in recommendation um but yeah i just wanted people to know and for ewan to know that the people that sean connery beat for best actor in a supporting role 
was Albert Brooks, Morgan Freeman, Vincent Gardinier, and Denzel Washington. So he was up against some fantastic actors. So in my opinion, the right person won, which I know probably means very little. But also, since you were talking about what Ness got up to, I find it um, hilarious. And I realized in reality, it's not that funny. But I think it's funny that many, many years later in 2019, Kevin Costner would kind of return to the role of playing a real-life lawman in The Highwayman and talking about the story of chasing down Bonnie and Clyde. So I actually think that's a pretty good film too. And I find it quite interesting that he has played two legendary lawmen (laughs) in his career. So I just find that funny. That is an interesting film. I watched that the year it came out. Um, It doesn't hold hold a candle to Bonnie and Clyde, um, but... It is an interesting film. I think he gives a good performance in it, as does Harrelson. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I think it's it's fun to interrogate these kind of like, you know, these these legendary and mythic figures in, in, in history. And I like the way that, you know, there's a lot to be said about different approaches. Obviously, The Highwayman is much more of like a down-to-earth, grounded kind of frank examination um, of that character. Whereas The Untouchables really, you know... It's like, John, you know, Liberty Balance it, you know, print the legend. Um, and there's yeah. a lot to be enjoyed with printing the legend. The thing as well is, and then, I'll, and then I'll wrap up, is although Bonnie and Clyde is definitely a better film in inverted commas, the portrayal of Frank Hamer was so quote-unquote bad that his widow literally sued Warner Brothers for defamation of character. And although it never went to court, she got quite a big settlement. So I'm guessing she would have won so (laughs) yeah i mean he is literally depicted as the grim reaper in that movie so yeah yeah. (laughs) understandable but yeah this has been the wheel of dad movies podcast thank you all for joining us as we dove into the untouchables scott where can everyone find you and the lovely lovely stuff you do for the action addicts podcast well, the easiest way to find me is to track me down on the actionaddictsnetwork.com. But if you want to go and specifically stalk me on social media, I am currently on Twitter at Addicts Action. I'm on Instagram as the Action Addicts Podcast. And if you go to there, there's a link to my personal Twitter if you want to find me on there. And if you don't know what we are, we're a podcast that focuses on action movies. Ewan was on a while ago to talk about John Wick. Hopefully he'll be on again fairly soon. And uh, if that's your sort of thing, then you should come on over and check us out. Different guest hosts every week, and I try and keep what we cover really varied. And just like the last episode, the Ninja movies are about to begin. So if you like that, now's a good time to come over. Very exciting. I mean, I know it's not a Ninja movie, but I have been dying to watch Lady Snowblood for ages. Um, It doesn't fit into the category at all, does it? You're (laughs) right. That's not a Ninja movie, but it's a damn good (laughs) film. And, And if you've not seen it... I would highly recommend you watch it. Maybe you could even come on and talk about it. Oh, that would be fun. I'd enjoy that, Scott, because it'll make me buy it and then I'll have it. and then we'll <laughs> That's a great it. reason. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, again, thank you everyone so much for listening. Remember, you can go and support the podcast on Patreon. We are Wheel of Dad Movies there. And I want to thank my patrons as well. Christopher Darby, George Jackson, Thomas Mulgrew, Shaka and Josh Brown um we're also obviously on twitter um you can catch me on twitter there too at you in ruins things i'm also on instagram and letterboxd where you can find all my fun little bite-sized review goodness i just did one on the texas chainsaw massacre which was a really fun watch last night um 
But yeah, this has been this has been Wheel of Dad movies. We'll see you next time, folks. Bye. <laughs>